Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. If you haven't noticed by now, I know it's hard not to notice, but just in case you haven't noticed by now, some of my biggest inspirations on this planet are journalists. I mean, I was a journalism student, shout out to USC Edinburgh, which is why I was so excited to talk to today's guest, Katie Couric. Guys, Katie Couric is here. If you didn't grow up watching her every morning, I don't know what to tell you, you missed out. Since her Today Show days, she's become the first woman ever to solo anchor the evening news. She had a talk show, traveled the country for numerous documentaries, started her own media company, and also has her own podcast. Katie has done it all, and we pretty much covered it all in this episode. Enjoy. So to start, like I said, I'm just so excited that you're here. I, I had this kind of moment uh, prepping for this where I realized, oh, I think hindsight, they say, is twenty twenty, and, you know, cliches are cliches because they're true. And I realized for me that as a kid who grew up watching you in real time and watching Oprah in real time and being obsessed with Murphy Brown. I mean, it was my favorite show on TV. Really? My, my parents were like, you're very strange. <laughs> I was six. And, oh you know, God. that was like all I wanted to watch Wheel of Fortune and Murphy Brown. And, um, and I don't think I realized what a deep impact having these iconic intellectual thought leaders to watch made on me until I look back at my own history and realize that, you know, I helped organize a protest at my school in the eighth grade and I went to college for a theater school degree and wound up realizing that I didn't love how small the department felt and transferring into the journalism school and studying political science. And and all of these things have informed my life, but I don't think I would have known I could be it if I hadn't seen it. Right. So, well, I'm a big believer in that and always have been. The idea of watching other people hmm. to really understand the possibilities that mm-hmm. you have and that's a really nice thing to hear because that's something I've always been cognizant of. When I was on the Today Show, I really wanted to make sure that I was seen as smart and competent and capable, that I could handle a lot of different kinds of interviews. Mm-hmm. Because there was a time when women, I think, were relegated to the second banana position, kind of in Mm -hmm. service of the male leader or the male figure Mm -hmm. on a lot of platforms or a lot of shows or a lot of, you know, avenues. And so the idea that I helped someone like you see that women could achieve a lot of things is really one of the reasons, I mean, the the true reason is because I love the work, but a secondary and very important reason is because I thought I could help shift, help in some way, shift the culture. Yeah. And, and, and I think it was really important to me as someone who grew up in during sort of the height of the women's movement, or at least, you know, one wave of feminism, mm-hmm that I would incorporate that and help 
spread the word about possibilities. And I imagine that it takes a job and makes it feel like a mission. It, it infuses things with purpose Yeah, when, when you really know what the potential impact can be. I think you're right. I mean, I think you're attracted to a job maybe for the nuts and bolts day-to-day work. And when your skills or talents intersect with the actual duties that you're performing. But I think another aspect is how can I take this, certainly when you have a visible job, and I think there's a bigger responsibility and obligation, but how can I take this platform and make sure that I handle it responsibly Mm -hmm. and even help move the ball forward in some way? Mm -hmm. And I think that has informed and imbued me professionally, my entire life, whether it was you know, greater opportunities for women or educating people about colon cancer and then Mm -hmm. starting a movement, starting Stand Up to Cancer. Mm -hmm. So all these things, I think, built on one another. And once I had a position where I, I did have some influence, figuring out how to use that influence as best as I could. Yes. And you do it so well. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, I try. I mean, you know, from the outside, I think I think we we all can sort of we we see other people more clearly than I think any of us knows how to see ourselves, but I am I'm curious because you've mentioned so many of the things that I really want to get into and talk about how you've built movements and how you've led cultural change. But I I'm curious about these these building blocks as you say what's the first block who is Katie Couric as a kid were you passionate about causes were you a super inquisitive little girl where where does your sort of brain and passion where does that begin to to sprout I was passionate about causes and very inquisitive mm-hmm. so yes and yes to <laughs> that you know I was a very outgoing child. I was the youngest of four kids, and I'm writing a memoir now, and I was thinking about the fact that my oldest sister, Emily, used to say that they'd put me in the middle of the table in my little baby carrier, and everybody would circle around me and ooh and ah and pay attention to me. So I got a lot. I had an audience from a very early age, (laughs) and I think that you know, that gave me a lot of confidence. And also I'm just wired to be super extroverted. You know, Mm -hmm. where does that come from? I think some of it, it's nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. So I was always asking questions, saying, hi, I never met a stranger. I was, I think my mom used to worry that I was like a puppy dog when I got out of college that I would put myself in danger because I was too friendly. Mm -hmm. But I think that plus... I remember having a a fair for the United Way with Diana Searleman, my next door neighbor. And we had like a fortune teller. I think I was nine and we had, you know, games and prizes. I'm sure it was super, super low, low touch and not very sophisticated. But I remember we made $11.62 for United Way. And the local paper came over and took our picture and I had a little safe and it was my brother Johnny's safe. And they wrote up our carnival or whatever we called it. And I, I've always cared about, I, I have always had this philanthropic bent mm. from an early age. Then my mom, 
she, so I was always trying to raise money for different organizations. And then when I was in high school, my mom had all of us except for Emily, because I'm not sure the camp was available when Emily, my sister, who was 10 years older than I was younger, but we all volunteered at a camp for blind kids in Washington, DC. It was at Mount Vernon junior college. It was sponsored by the Columbia lighthouse for the blind. And we were all camp counselors at this camp. So my other sister, Kiki, who goes by Clara now, uh, Mm -hmm. my brother, Johnny, who likes to be called John, and I all were counselors at this camp. And I think it really taught me to see beyond myself, beyond my little microcosmic world in Northern Mm -hmm. Virginia, and be exposed to all different kinds of kids and kids, kids who who were less fortunate and who also, you know, were in very different circumstances because of their disability mm. and uh, or disabilities because it ran the gamut. And there were some who were multi- multiply, I guess multiple handicapped is what they were called, but now I guess they'd be called differently abled. And mm. so there were some kids with learning disabilities and blindness or some with just blindness, and they they did come from all socioeconomic levels, but it just was such a formative experience for mm-hmm. me. Such a stretching of perspective. Yeah, and just to, to be exposed to people who are so different than you are, and also to feel that you are serving them in some ways and helping them, and we'd go on field trips, we'd go swimming, we'd go to the Folklife Festival on the mall in Washington, D.C. We'd go bowling. I know it sounds crazy because you think about blind children going bowling, but, you know, to literally have these experiences, and I was going to say, see things through their eyes, and in a way you do, even though they can't see, to understand their experiences, I think was a really wonderful way to build empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think empathy is so important. And I've always been a very empathetic person, but I think that made me even more so, and my siblings as well. Hmm. And you mentioned that you grew up in Virginia, and, and this was in D.C., this camp. Right. What, what were these, I guess, what would you say are some of the most important lessons your parents taught you? Because it would seem to me that service is one. Right. What an amazing thing that they said you know, our family's going to go and volunteer and work with other kids and and really create community in a space that I would imagine a lot of other people weren't exposed to. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious kind of about family dynamics and what, in hindsight, you think your your parents were really passionate about teaching you guys. You know, I've often tried to figure out the secret sauce of my parents and their parenting skills. I think that they were incredibly involved, but not so involved. It was creepy. You know, they weren't mm. helicopter parents, but they they were, you know, we were a really strong family unit. Education was incredibly important. My mm. parents were both really smart. My dad per- was particularly erudite and well-read, just sharp. He was a journalist and read everything and could talk fluently about almost any topic. And my mom was very kind of clever and smart and funny and 
just quick. Mm. And so I think, I think it was the emphasis on education. You know, we had a lot of family time. You know, we ate together every night. It was very, mm. I mean, old-fashioned. We, My fondest memories are eating, you know, in the summer on our porch and having corn on the cob and fresh tomatoes and going to the swimming pool all day. And, you know, it was just a very wholesome, wonderful environment. They supported us in everything we did. Mm -hmm. And I think encouraged us and in a way pushed us, but they weren't too pushy. Mm -hmm. And I think they saw education as the real key to improving yourself and improving your station in life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something they were quite, demanding in terms of our grades. But by the time I came along, the fourth kid, I think they were more relaxed and I wasn't as, you know, probably as driven as my siblings were, especially my older sisters. Hmm. Even though I was driven, I was kind of a goof off and I could kind of get away as a typical youngest child, sort of being charming and funny and I think I took shortcuts and I procrastinated and I was smart, but I wasn't as disciplined, I think, as Mm -hmm. I might have been. I wish I had been more disciplined. Do you think, though, that that tendency to procrastinate when you were young is part of what allows you to be so good on the fly as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the fact that I waited to the last minute and would do my homework, waiting for the bus in the morning and my dad would get so exasper- exasperated with me. I think it did. I, I, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, and I mm-hmm. like waiting to the last minute. And I, you know, if I have 40 minutes to get ready, I'll, you know, goof off until I have 20 minutes to get mm-hmm. ready. And I don't know what that is, but um, so yeah, it's I don't crazy. know why. <laughs> and so I think it's it's actually. And then I'm so stressed, but I yeah. think I must like stress. If mm. there's if there's such a phenomenon, and so I think well, you procrastinating, do well under pressure. yeah, yeah, yeah I, I like pressure, and I also was a pretty good writer from an mm. early age, and my dad I think recognized it as a writer himself, and he really encouraged me to pursue journalism because I think he saw that I was a master procrastinator and that I was a pretty good writer. What were you reading back then? Oh, I was thinking about that the other day. I was been going through all these papers, and I was thinking about some of my favorite children's books. Well, early on, of course, I read sort of the typical books, you know, Dr. Seuss and P.D. Eastman, Are You My Mother, and Go, Dog, Go. And my great aunt would send me books about Flora McFlimsey, I think is her name. I can't remember, but she was a doll. And I have to find those books because they're so cute and sweet. So I was reading in high school, in junior high, and I remember I loved from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, mm. which I think won a Caldecott Award. I remember I liked a book called Light a Single Candle, which was a, written by, I think, a blind girl. I also liked A Patch of Blue, which was later a movie with Sidney Poitier. So I just read all kinds of weird things. Uh, but I, I I did love to read, and I wish I had read more because I sometimes people ask me about kids, and I do think reading, being a, an avid reader and an enthusiastic reader, 
is definitely the key to life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you learn so much and you can take, you know, you can, you can just have all these different experiences. And I think that's another thing that really helps you develop empathy. Yes. And you can really get inside of other people's heads and worlds and, I know that you also were a huge Mary Tyler Moore fan. I was, yeah. Were you? Yes. Oh, when you were and like when three? she would go into that office. <laughs> well, I I was a Nick at Night junkie as oh. a kid because my parents got they were pretty watchful of what I was watching. Um, so like Mary Tyler Moore and Mr. Ed were on in my house all the time. I remember when Mr. <laughs> Ed went off the air and I cried. I mean, I was inconsolable. Can I was you like sing the, the theme horse. song to Mr. Ed? I don't know. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. famous Mr. Ed. Yes. Oh, my the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Ed. That's People amazing. Yakety their do and waste their time. Anyway, it's You've so got funny because that yeah. was these were the shows that I loved too. Yeah, and I remember Wilbur. I, it was just so good, and I remember thinking, you know, even as a kid, watching Mary Tyler Moore advocating for making as much as her male coworkers, right? And and. I remember asking my dad, you know, who owned a business, I was like, you pay everybody the same, right? You know, and and th- my parents were so taken aback. Um, and, you know, it's, it spawned all these interesting conversations. And I think, again, in hindsight, I realized how impactful good messaging can be in content. Yeah. And Oh, it's true. I mean, yeah. if you look at the arc of feminism and you think about Mary Tyler Moore, she was such mm-hmm. a trailblazer. Mm-hmm. And you say that watching, you know, watching me or Oprah helped you realize the possibilities you had. You know, when I was growing up, most women were stay-at-home moms. You know, mm-hmm. women who worked were a real anomaly. And so to see this young career woman... Both my sisters married pretty much right out of college. Mm. And for me as a young girl, 10, 11, 12, to see someone like Mary Tyler Moore having a career, making it on her own, driving Mm. to Minneapolis, and um, having a life that was complete without a male to complete her, Mm -hmm. thank you, Tom Cruise, is that, you know, was, was so exciting to me Mm. and so revelatory Mm -hmm. as well. And so that show, I've often said, I give it credit for me kind of understanding that I had, that there was a path out there Mm -hmm. for me that wasn't necessarily getting married and having kids in Mm. your 20s, but to have a profession. And um, you know, it sounds funny now, but women who worked when I was coming of age mm-hmm. were really few and far between. Yeah. And I think something that's so interesting, I've, I've had this debate with some people who say, you know, why aren't, if, if a woman wants to be a stay-at-home mom, like, why is that bad per feminism? And, and my whole response is always, it isn't. What was, what was bad was that we weren't given any other option. We were told that our only value was to be subservient and serve 
others rather than to ask what we need. Being in a more of a supportive role. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think we should be able to do all of it. I think if you want to be a mom, be a mom. And if you don't, don't. And if you want to be a mom with a career, do that. I think that the, the pushing of culture toward honoring women as equally valued means that, that culture should honor all of our options equally, but that you should never have that scene that we've all watched on Mary Tyler Moore, where her boss says, well, you know, women don't need to make as much money because they're not supporting a wife and kids. And it's like, which we're supporting ourselves. I'm confused. Right. And, and so, well, I think that that sort of implicit bias sometimes enters into the conversation, even if it's a man Mm. and he's not married with Mm. a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that there have been a lot of studies that show that that really has an impact on your salary, uh, especially if you're a man Mm. and people think, oh, he has got a family to support. But all this thinking has been so deeply ingrained and I think it's starting to shift. And as as far as your comment about women who work inside the home and You know, I think that Melinda Gates recently cited that women spend seven hours of additional unpaid labor doing things around the house in addition to their full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think that this, you can't really have equality in the workplace if you don't have equality at home. And I think that's starting to change as well. But, you know, I agree with you, but I think it comes back to that word purpose for Mm -hmm. stay-at-home moms or women who work inside the home or people who decide to really uh, focus on, on raising their kids. You know, I think I think those people should be, people who make those choices should be respected and honored. But I do think it's important to have some sense of purpose that goes beyond perhaps just raising your kids. Because what I've seen and what I would worry about if I had channeled all my energy into that is when your kids leave, you know, and your goal is to get them roots and wings, so mm-hmm. you hope that they do fly away, that you're not left feeling that you have no sense of purpose mm-hmm. in the world, that mm-hmm. you have no kind of options. So I think it is important. And I think for a long time, women felt it was selfish, but to focus on their own passions and mm-hmm. what they like to do, whether it's volunteer work or phil- philanthropy or writing or And the other thing that I also think about, and I've really emphasized to my two daughters, is the importance of being financially independent. Mm. Now, that's not for everyone, but for me, I never liked the feeling of relying on someone else because I do think it really affects the power dynamics in a relationship, gives you less of a say. And I always wanted to be able to have my own agency in a a relationship. Mm. And so... There's a really good book by Leslie Bennett's that I read early in my career called The Feminine Mistake. This book talks about women who decide to give up everything for their husbands and families. Mm. And the only uh, sort of flashing red light about that choice is things happen, shit happens, mm-hmm. men leave their wives for their assistants or their colleagues. People die, as mm-hmm. in the case of my husband, Jay, mm-hmm. who died when he was 42 years old and our girls were six and two. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think that it's really important to have that financial independence and to be able to support yourself. Now, not everyone necessarily might not necessarily agree with me, but I just think it's something that is really important for for my girls Mm -hmm. and it's something for young women I think it's important to think about. Yeah. My mom and I have had so many conversations about that because my mom always worked. And then I think when I was two, decided to stay home with me full time and is such an amazing mom, but, you know, had me in her thirties. So she'd had a career. Right. And it's really interesting because she's very frank with me about how she wouldn't change anything and is so glad she was home with me, but wants me to always make my own money. Yeah. And my parents are still married and they're like weirdly very cute and they hold hands and I'm like, what's wrong with you people? No, what's going so on? Nice. You know, they're, no, so they're, did she they, go back to work as you got older? She went back to work when I was in college. Mm-hmm. She actually went back and uh, started working with my dad and it was meant to be temporary. My, my dad was in transition and um, had a studio manager who moved. He was a photographer for 40 years mm-hmm. and retired recently. But my mom said, you know, I used to run the studio. I can do this while we find somebody new. And then my dad called me and was like, it's so fun having your mom around. And we take the carpool lane to work. Uh And it's awesome. And I'm not going to look for anybody. Don't tell her yet. Where where do they live? "Uh, In Pasadena. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. They're very, they're, they're pretty cool folks. But, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting to be able to have that conversation with her where she just said, you know, your dad and I are lucky. Like we've done the work, we've stuck out the fights, we've done all the good and all the bad and, and we're in this together, but I hate having to check in with him before I do something before, you know, I book a plane ticket or whatever, just because she was like, I don't, I don't have that agency. Right. Um, And remember, I mean, you're way too young for I Love Lucy, but you know, you think about Lucy. Ma'am, the Nick at Night reruns, come on. (laughs) Well, if you think of Lucy Ricardo, I mean, how, how weird it was, you know, and, and other shows, by the way, Mm. it wasn't just that show. I mean, for many years, the whole trope would be the woman, you know, getting in trouble for buying something yes. or going shopping and kind of having to get permission from her husband to buy a new pair of shoes or whatever. And, you know, it just, it, it, it does seem so retro. Mm-hmm. And that really is what life is like. If you don't earn your own money, right. um, then you don't get to spend your own money. And mm-hmm. it's it's just so funny how much things have changed. Mm-hmm. And I just love being able to do what I want with the money I've made that I've worked hard to mm-hmm. to get and to not have to be beholden to someone or not to have to ask permission, which almost mm-hmm. seems ludicrous to even discuss. But that is mm-hmm. sort of what, what it was like for many women. Um, and that's the only reason I... I do encourage my girls to be financially independent so yes. they can have some freedom and to have their bank account, their partner's bank, bank account eventually, and then a joint bank account for right. joint expenses. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting as as we talk about how society evolves to take care of everyone, you know, men and women and, and everyone who identifies in between and figuring out how to remove, to your point, 
some of the dynamics that can create imbalance so that there just never is any. You know, how nice to be in a partnership without these strange unsaid tensions. Right, right. And I think men are, are, you know, I think the hunter-gatherer thing is starting to shift a little bit too because Mm. I think as men take on more responsibility at home and as women make more money, these these very restrictive gender roles that have been mm-hmm. so, so as I said, ingrained in our consciousness and subconsciousness mm-hmm. and reinforced through images and mass media, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's starting to change. Yeah. I really do. Okay, listeners, I'm going to tell you about this awesome bra company called Third Love. Their bras look good and feel good on, their straps don't slip, and there are tagless labels. To find the perfect bra, you don't even need to leave your house. Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women for a fit finder quiz that takes under 60 seconds, and it actually works. Because breast shape actually matters when you're finding a bra, Third Love offers over 80 sizes, including half cup sizes. Again, because they actually get it. Also, if you try out your bra and you don't love it, you have 60 days to return it. And if you do, Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. I love that. So right now, Third Love is giving my listeners a special deal to help you find your perfect bra, 15% off your first order. All you need to do is go to thirdlove.com slash WIP and you'll get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash WIP for 15% off today. If you watch my coffee-loving escapades on Instagram, you know this by now, but just in case you don't, I love Four Sigmatic. They are a natural superfood company that specializes in mushroom-based drinks, which don't taste like mushrooms, that benefit our immunity, our energy, and our longevity. They have mixes like coffee with lion's mane, which supports productivity, focus, and creativity. They have mushroom matcha, which has adaptogens to support your body from stress. I love their golden latte mushroom mix. Shiitake has been used for centuries to support full body well-being and is one of the most underrated mushrooms for your skin. So you're in luck. They are giving the work in progress audience 15% off your first Four Sigmatic purchase. You just need to go to foursigmatic.com slash Sophia or use discount code Sophia at checkout. That's foursigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash Sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A for 15% off. So before you started analyzing things like mass media and gender roles, uh, the, the space between being an avid reader in junior high and high school and becoming the journalist you are, you went to UVA. Mm-hmm. And were you studying journalism there? What was your path into this? Well, they didn't have a journalism department per mm-hmm. se. It's a liberal arts school. and But I, I majored in English and history, American studies. Mm-hmm. And I my dad encouraged me to just write a lot. And, and I loved English and I loved writing. So... I really enjoyed my major, but then I wrote for the school newspaper Mm -hmm. during the summers. I worked at radio stations in Washington, D.C., and was just exposed to that world. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, worked at 
ABC, CNN, and then worked in local news. So I spent a lot of of days, weeks, and and months and years kind of just honing my my skills Mm -hmm. as a reporter, feeling more comfortable on air, understanding how to tell a story, how to get Mm -hmm. important sound bites, how to make people feel comfortable, how to get the most from interviews and you know, I I am a firm believer in Malcolm Gladwell's edict that it takes 10,000 hours doing yes. something to become really good at it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent that and then some. But so, you know, I just was really, it just, I picked the perfect profession for my personality and my skill set, I think. Right. When you talk about learning how to make people comfortable and, and figuring out how to ask the right questions, what are some of those lessons that you can pass on to people who are in the midst of their right. of putting in their 10,000 hours? Well, I think for anyone, sort of this is this is sort of uh, if I had to give a master class, it would be on developing EQ, you know, emotional mm-hmm. intelligence, and I think that serves you no matter what you're doing in any career. So, I think I think you first of all, you know, I think people know when you're interested and when you're not right? So you're really good at eye contact and that's good. No, that's good. And kind of, I can feel you're engaged with what we're talking about Mm. or you're faking it really well. No, I'm so excited. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I think eye contact's super important. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, I think some people do have better innate skills when it comes to reading people, like how to read a room and how to read people. So I think, kind of getting a sense of who someone is and trying to make that person comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm the kind of person who walks into a room and if someone's standing by themselves, I make a beeline to that person Mm. because it just breaks my heart to see someone who may feel awkward or alone. I mean, that's just, I don't know. That's the person I've always been kind of like, who needs help? Yeah, except now you're going up to the person who's alone and you're Katie Couric and they're like, what's happening? No, not really. <laughs> but I'll, I will go up and introduce myself yeah. and say hi. And, that's so nice. Um, you know, so I, that's where my outgoing extroverted personality really comes mm-hmm. in into play. But I would say, um, you know, and and think about it. Preparation's really important. Yeah. You know, the fact that you knew I went to UVA. You mm-hmm. know, nothing's worse than having someone... I can tell like after 20 seconds if someone isn't prepared or has Mm. done zero homework. Mm. And it's kind of insulting, honestly. Yes. But you see that a lot. You know, they'll ask really dumb questions and you're like, you could have found that out on like a 45-second Wikipedia, uh, you know, uh, read. And so I think preparing and thinking about it in advance is really important Mm. and, you know, is there something interesting about this person that they would really like to talk about that they haven't talked about a lot? Right. So I just think also tonally for me, it's been important. You know, I worked with Jeff Zucker early on in my career and we talked about the tone of every interview. And sometimes the tone is a little more combative mm-hmm. and sometimes it's more empathetic. And so I think going in, it's very important to be conscious of tone and how you're interacting with somebody. But I just think all those things, whether it's a job interview, body language is super important. I'm still a firm believer in good manners, Mm -hmm. eye contact, a firm handshake, thank Mm -hmm. you notes, you know, all those things. I think just, just being 
just being well-mannered is really mm-hmm. important too. So I think if you can think of, of all of that, I think it can be helpful. Mm. My mom's a huge proponent of a handwritten thank you note too. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm I still trying. I more Ooh, and I don't. It's yeah, hard. It is hard. But even if you can't do that to write an email. Yeah. Um, That's really very true. The follow-up is is a thing that I think some people assume is just, uh, you know, frivolous or I don't, oh, I don't want to bother that person. They already gave me some of their time. Yeah. And it's, it, it always feels like the opposite. When someone yeah. follows up with me, I know I'm always so grateful for the fact that they thought to. So I think the other thing is, is you have to be a good listener, you know, mm-hmm. because if you are engaged and you're a good listener, then you'll be able to have a conversation go naturally where it should go. Mm-hmm. And and I always had a list of questions, you know, when I was doing interviews, but I'd always try to, if someone brought up something that was surprising mm-hmm. or controversial, then you have to be kind of ready to take an interview in a very different direction. Sure. And what do you do when something gets controversial or, or, or to reference what you said a moment ago, you're walking into a situation you know might be combative, you know? Mm-hmm. We think about the current political landscape oh, and God, we're, yeah. you know, we're, we're literally having questions about whether or not we deserve human rights. You know, this, is, this feels insane. It does, doesn't how it? Do you, how do you suit up for that kind of combative moment but still make sure that you're going to get to the meat of something rather than have just, you know, a fight where no one's listening to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you, you're talking about sort of day-to-day conversation or... I guess I'm curious, you know, for you, because you've had the the access of the position as a journalist to interview so many people who I, many of us watch, you know, from the sidelines or, you know, on Twitter or C-SPAN and we're just like screaming at the TV. And I'm curious how you, how you press to the center of an issue and still keep your cool and, and don't make someone feel alienated, but certainly challenge them. Yeah, I mean, I did a, an hour for Nat Geo on, on white anxiety, and I spoke to a lot of working class white men about sort of their feelings of frustration and alienation and mm. kind of the economic uncertainty. And, you know, I think you try to have a very open mind. But I also, I think a lot of it is in the approach. I think today we're so ready to pounce Mm. at someone who doesn't agree with us. And I think you do get a lot more, I think you are able to advance a conversation a lot more with gentle persuasion or, you know, I was thinking recently the president said that horrible comment about the four freshman members of Congress that... Who, of course, are women of color. Right. Mm. And although I, I have to agree with people who said I didn't... I, 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 I was sad to see AOC bring up race when it came to Nancy Pelosi because I don't, I don't believe that that was kind of part of the conflict. I think it was more incrementalism versus radical change and generational and philosophical difference. On Nancy's perspective. Yeah, I think so. Because it's obviously quite racist on Donald Trump's. Yes. Mm. And I was thinking, why did he say that? I mean, it's so 
nothing is that surprising at this point, but why would you say something so horrendous and horrific and blatantly mm-hmm. racist? And I just, I'm, and, and so I was thinking, well, how would I have a conversation with someone about that? Mm-hmm. And are there people who don't have a problem with those sentiments? And clearly there are. Mm-hmm. And he is appealing to sort of the, the worst side of humanity mm-hmm. in making that comment. And I think you can feel that you can even be anti-immigration or feel that immigration should be more restrictive or there should be comprehensive immigration reform or we can't have completely porous borders. You can believe all those things without resorting to that kind of hatred Mm -hmm. and nastiness. But I think so much about what President Obama said, and he said that the presidency does not reveal, obviously in his case as a man, the presidency does not reveal the man or does not make you the man that you are. It reveals reveals the man man that you Mm -hmm. are. And we've always known who Donald Trump is. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like a surreal time to be alive because to your point, we have historically analyzed positions which often come from opposite perspectives, but it has never felt like this. No, it hasn't. And I think what is interesting, you know, when you talk about that generation gap between someone like a Nancy Pelosi and an AOC, I understand at times when I when I try to figure out why Pelosi speaks on certain things the way she does, I think about her age, I think about her perspective, I think about her entire life moving through the women's movement. Right. And the women's movement for women who look like us is recommitting to so many of the ideals that Gloria Steinem set. It is also realizing that we have to go so much deeper because the patriarchy has often bifurcated sex and race Mm -hmm. to maintain its stronghold on society. Mm -hmm. And I think so many young women are saying, we we can't do this anymore. And especially women who look like us have to be out there advocating on the front lines for women of color. No, and I agree, by the way, and I'm so excited about that uh, development. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I did something on The View recently, and I said, I think, Nancy Pelosi needs to be much less dismissive, mm-hmm. but there also has to be some level of respect yes. from from younger women. And I think and both the idea for us to kind of cannibalize our efforts mm-hmm. and to work at cross purposes is just so unnecessary and actually advantageous for people who don't want to see progress made. So, yes. you know, I think I think there can be a, you know, diff- a difference in opinion or approaches, but I think sometimes we we have to make sure women keep their eye on the prize. Mm-hmm. And I, I I agree with all those things that you said, and I'm I'm really heartened and encouraged by it. But but I also think there has to you know you mm-hmm. have to kind of respect your elders of and course. the people who have come before you. And but also I think you have to appreciate the changes that that haven't come and mm-hmm. the impatience of a younger generation to really to move the ball forward in a way that mm-hmm. it keeps getting blocked at the at the goalpost. Yes. And to we use a sports analogy. Yeah, I like that. And and you know, I'm thinking you're right. of women's soccer when I say this oh my by God, the way. Same. By the way, that team <laughs> yeah. I just like I'm their biggest fan. To your point, I think it can be really hard as 
younger women who have this frustration with where we're not to have as deep an understanding of where we weren't. And while I don't think we can ever rest on our success because there's more work to do, the point that you were making was that we do need to have some some reverence and be willing to hear, uh, I think, the experience and and I would think perhaps some of the fear that the women who came before us have for how we might fail if we're not careful. And I, I understand that when you think about, you know, I have that conversation with my mom a lot and and she'll kind of get into this thing with me where I go, you're making me feel super judged. And I know you're not trying to do that. And she'll go, I'm so sorry. I just, I love you. And I don't want you to be hurt or I don't want this to happen. And I'm just expressing my fear about what could go wrong. And obviously when we're getting into politics and social movements, it's a much, much bigger space. But I think about it a bit in the same way where people who've come before us and really paved the road have seen what's been worse and have advice and I think very often that advice is wonderful. It's advice we need to take into account. And I also think it can be our job. And I say our job, even though I'm sort of straddling both of these demographics, you know, I look at, um, I look at the women coming after me, even in, you know, the AOCs of the world who are like change now, you know, more radical change now. And I also agree with what they're saying. And, and I think that in my estimation of having been overeager and sometimes made mistakes and also knowing that I, I want people to succeed to the best of their ability. I think we need to put it all in the pot and figure out what the new kind of the new stew, the new tea looks like. And so what do you, I'm just curious what, what you think is the way forward? Well, I think, um, I think this whole conversation speaks to the judgment and my way of the highway attitude that I think too many people have. And mm -hmm. I think the fact that we just need to listen to each other mm -hmm. a little bit more and have more empathy. You know, I look at my generation and it was really one of the first that went out into the workforce. Yeah. You know, when I got into television, it was a male dominated industry. The women were relegated to supportive roles mm -hmm. and there were very few producers, correspondents, technical people who were female. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I'm of two minds. I can understand people's impatience, but I also know that change is really hard. Mm. And we live in New York and LA where a certain attitude prevails and it's not necessarily the attitude of other places in the country. And I think people need to be persuaded. I think the incrementalism of the Obama administration wasn't necessarily a bad thing because radical change often, I think, comes with a huge backlash that sometimes sets us back even further. Mm -hmm. So I am so excited and, and, and appreciate the enthusiasm of younger people who want to change things now. And I think AOC is getting people to talk about things mm -hmm. and consider them. And by, you know, sometimes you have to be really radical to get change at all, mm -hmm. right? Because then you move forward and then everybody settles back a little bit, but it's what starts the conversation finally. And this conflict between the old and the new. So I think that we just all, I mean, I think everybody 
pretty much wants the same thing. Mm. And I think the road to getting there can be debated. But, you know, I'm not saying people should be bowing down to older women or more mature women, but I think they should appreciate their struggles. And, you know, I think in many cases, I've been talking to a lot of my contemporaries about this. We had to go along to get along. And Mm. some of the things that are just plain out unacceptable for younger women were things that were part of the culture that we would roll our eyes at or, you know, kind of talk about privately. But to to change the whole status quo, we wouldn't have even gotten a seat at the table. Mm. So it would have been too risky, I think. So I, I think every time results in a certain behavior that's right for that time. And I'm glad that young women are now saying, wait a second, what you put up with or tolerated is no longer acceptable. Well, in that incrementalism you speak of, that fascinates me when it comes to women in the workplace in the, in the era that you're discussing. Because to your point, you guys broke down the doors and got in the room, but you still had to deal with so much bad behavior in the workplace. And I know we all have as well, but, but I'm fascinated by what you're saying that in a way, as women, you had to band together, roll your eyes, figure out how to survive it, figure out how to sidestep the navigator, editor, the yeah. creepy producer. And, and that in a way, your chipping away at the system has allowed finally so many of us to say, this has to change. And I said- And sit, has put more women in positions of power. Yes. And that's um, incremental too. You know, it's still not enough. We don't no, have parity. But I'm fascinated because I think about even when I first started working in TV, it was the same. We all would talk about, you know, how creepy our our boss was, the creator and executive producer of my first show. But we figured out how to sort of navigate around it. And, and we would, you know, we would read each other's texts from him and figure out, do you say something to this? Do you not? And make sure if you're, you know, if you get invited to dinner, you call three of us and we all go together. And, and it's interesting to see the ways in which now we're talking about how to change systems in the workplace. But when you really pull back and look at it, we're talking about it. This is a national conversation. It's, it's been time, you know, as the phrase goes, but we still have so much work to do to actually change the operating procedures of the culture in the workplace. Oh, definitely. I mean, we have to change the systems, but I think back then, oftentimes because there was a patriarchy at the workplace (laughs) that, you know, these complaints wouldn't be taken seriously. HR has problems even today with the changing workplace in terms of protecting the status quo and being Mm -hmm. beholden to the status quo. Yeah, they don't really protect women. So I think, you know, it's just really, really interesting. I think if you put yourselves, if some young women put themselves in the shoes of of older women, Mm -hmm. say in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and imagine what it was like and how they had to kind of deal with with a system that was not exactly receptive to their mm-hmm. complaints or issues. They would understand that we've made a lot of strides. But at the same time, again, I appreciate women who are saying, wait a second, this is totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy about that. And both can be true. Yeah. We've exa- made incredible strides and we still have a long way to go. But we don't have to pit 
ourselves against each other. I mean, exactly. to me, that it's just that seems to be sort of the culture right now, infusing sort of conflict in every conversation. I'm curious about again all of your wisdom and perspective on this, and I would like to go back when when we were speaking a few moments ago about you know, you talking about that initial time in the news and how few women there were. And, you know, there's, there's nobody on the set, maybe except for you, you know, it's not like there's female sound engineers at the time or, or any well, of this. Well, this was 1979. So there were like production assistants mm. and what were once called secretaries. Right. You know, it wasn't quite mad men, but there was a dearth of sort of female, of, of a female presence there. Do you think that because so few of us for so long got in the room that that influenced, because you do hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, women are so competitive with each other. And it's like, well, yeah, because the patriarchy's made us compete with each other because it's told us there's only one of us allowed. Is that true though? You know, I've, I've actually fascinated by that whole topic because I feel that men are uber competitive, Mm. you know, and I've been kind of thinking about this a lot about women not being competitive and supporting other women. And yes, that's great. It is great. On the other hand, is there something inherently wrong about being competitive? Mm. You know, about about wanting to achieve and wanting to be better than or wanting that promotion. You know, I think it's such a fine line. I think it's about the kind of competition. But what I'm saying is, and and should men become more like women Mm. and be less competitive and more supportive? Or do men know what they're doing in in a workplace in Mm. terms of, you know, I think they're much more quietly competitive. I think that the archetype is seeing the cat fight you know, I think that the three main anchors when it was Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and Dan Rather were competitive as hell. Mm-hmm. And yet it was never portrayed as this vicious cat Daddy. fight. Yeah. And there is no real, there, there's no expression in the lexicon, really, that describes men. I mean, would it be dog eat dog? I don't know. but mm. But I think this idea has become so elevated that I just wonder, I I really, I'm still sort of processing and formulating my point of view on it, but I just wonder if it's, has been overemphasized with women. I love that you just said that I'm processing and formulating my view. So many people feel like they have to know how they feel about something all of the time. And to be willing to say, yeah, I'm trying to analyze this. You know, this is interesting. It doesn't do well for us to cannibalize each other, but also some healthy competition can be good. And I'm going to figure out thoughts as I continue to research. I love I love the permission you just offered to so many other people who are listening to say, I don't completely know yet. This is what I find interesting about it. And just to be there. Yeah. That's huge. In the, you know, in well, this I do world think where we're that, supposed to know all the time. Well, I do think that that people are supposed to have a very mm. strong point of view on everything. Mm. And I think the social media environment really encourages that. Exacerbates And it, yeah. um, I think that 
that again, thoughtful dialogue and conversation yeah. is just not a, it's not good television mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's, it's not manufactured outrage. It's just conversation and, you know, and it's nice that you give people a space to be able to kind of talk about these things and figure them out in real time or just talk about it. Yeah. I think we need it. And it is interesting to me because that idea of good television, you know, we both have worked in, in the space for a long time. And I so often hear more, more often than not men at the top say, well, that's not good television. And I'm like, well, you want everything to be a cage match and I'm not interested in watching that. I actually think this would be amazing television. You're just not giving us the space to do this. So we're out here making podcasts, you know? (laughs) Um, It's like the ladies are always going to get it done. And if you close one door, we're just going to build another one. So I sort of of love that. I think we can all agree that uncomfortable shoes are the worst. So that's why I'm excited to tell you about Rothy's, the perfect everyday shoes for life on the go. They are super cute and comfortable and they go with everything. And the best part, they're seamlessly knit using thread made from plastic water bottles. Rothy's has diverted over 35 million water bottles from landfills already. How cool is that? Rothy's own and operate their manufacturing workshop where they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. So there's no unnecessary packaging. I have two pairs actually, and I love them. Check out all the amazing styles available at rothys.com slash Sophia. Go to rothys.com, that's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Sophia to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability, these are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash Sophia today. When I think about the doors that, that you were opening, you know, working at CNN and and being in this breaking news space and, you know, becoming a reporter in, in Miami. Do you remember, I'm just curious if we can take it back a, a minute because I have so many questions I want to ask you. Do you remember what your first on-camera story was? My first on-camera story was at CNN mm. and I was an assistant assignment editor. I was 23 or 24 years old maybe 23, and the Stuart Lurie, who was had been the editor of the Chicago Sun-Times, I believe, was the Washington bureau chief of CNN. And I think he knew that I was ambitious and wanted to be a reporter, so he offered me an opportunity to go to the White House and say what the president was doing that day. Well, I had never been on camera. I'd never done a report. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember exactly what I was wearing. I remember going there. I remember having diarrhea all night because I was such a nervous wreck. And and I got there and yeah, TMI. And I got there and the anchors said to each other, who is that girl? She looks like she's about 16 years old during the commercial break. And I was like, oh shit, this is not exactly a big confidence booster. So I went on, I said what the president was doing that day. I would very proudly pronounce Zbigniew Brzezinski and I was terrible. And the, I, I looked young, I sounded young. I'm sure I looked like I had no confidence at all. And the president of CNN called and said, I never wanna see that girl on the air again. Yeah, 
It was a disaster. What? <laughs> With a capital D. How yeah, terrible. How do you crawl out of that devastating I mean, emotional hole Well, it was that. obviously very upsetting. And I remember the assignment desk t- editor, Bill Hensel, telling me that, who was such a nice guy. And I, um, I was devastated, but I just thought, I'll show him. And, and, and to be honest with you, in hindsight, he was exactly right. They should never have done that. Mm. I should never have been there. I wasn't good. I stunk. You weren't ready. I wasn't ready. I hadn't had enough experience. Mm. And while I appreciate Stuart Lurie, may he rest in peace, uh, you know, giving me this opportunity, I just, it just, it just, I wasn't ready. So I kind of made a vow that I was going to get good at doing it. And I was, you know, going to continue working on it. And I was a producer uh, and I moved to Atlanta for CNN. I produced a show from noon to two. So I did a lot of behind the scenes jobs in television, which I think made me better because Mm -hmm. it made me sort of understand what was needed. And then I started reporting. I had a very supportive anchor who let me do reporting and worked with me. I went to a voice coach or, you know, who helped me kind of use my voice better because I was kind of like this a lot, you know, because I spoke from my throat instead of my diaphragm. Wow. I mean, it's not th- something I'm conscious of now. My, now my voice, I feel so low. You have a kind of, your, our voices are a little similar, although yeah. yours is much raspier than mine. It's funny because I've sounded like this since I was a kid. Really? And I remember, I like you know, it. Remember when we still had landlines, like the, oh, yeah. the phone on the wall? Uh, yes, I remember landlines. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> and tele- You know, I'm 62, so I do remember landlines. I mean, landlines. so you know, and telemarketers <laughs> used to call my house and I'd pick up the phone and go, hello. And they'd want to talk about things. And I I literally, I How remember, old were you? I remember my dad, I didn't know he was behind me, cackling, laughing when I went, sir, I can't talk to you about this. I'm nine. <laughs> and the guy was like, what? On the other end of the phone and goes, are any of are your parents home? And I, I don't know why I've just always sounded like this. Yeah. I like it. Thanks. It's, it's, it's kind of what do you call it? Raspy. Thank you. Yeah. I think I have, you know, it's so funny because I walk around now and if I don't have any makeup on or, and, you know, or people just, you know, aren't cognizant of their surroundings and I start talking, people always look and because I think for so long on the Today Show and maybe a little bit on on the evening news, people would hear my voice because they'd be doing other things during the show. And so my voice, I think, is very distinctive too, isn't it? I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know how I sound because you sound differently to yourself, right? Yes. When you hear yourself, you're like, wait, what? I have that too, though. My voice gets me caught in public. Yeah. You know, if I have a hat on or sunglasses or someone hasn't noticed in a crowd, but I start speaking to somebody, heads start turning. Really? That's funny. Yeah. So that's really funny. I have that too. You mentioned the Today Show. So, okay. We have a disaster at CNN and then you go to Atlanta and and you're producing and you're learning and you're and you're getting into your body, which I also think is a is a big thing for women. I think so many women the the tension of wanting to be good and and right and impress people, like when it closes your chest up right here, can really bring your your voice up into that nervous space. So you're settling into yourself. How do we get from there to the Today Show? How does I mean, that, that happen? That insane? It's so crazy. Um, well, I I decided. Well, I have a long story about CNN, which I'm 
writing about right now for my book. Can we but get see, a preview or are we saving it? Let's just say that I had an encounter with an executive that I think later came back to haunt me a bit. And oh. uh, you, 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 I'll, I'll get into more details because I actually saved a memo that I kept from 1984. Isn't that crazy? Whoa. But anyway, so I ended oh, up I can't leaving, wait to hear what that I is. ended up leaving CNN and moving to Miami to be a local news reporter. Mm. And that was really so important because that gave me the day in, day out experience of reporting, mm. of going to the Chrome Detention Center where a lot of Haitian refugees were were staying or kept and doing stories on, I mean, that was sort of multiculturalism 101, to live in mm. Miami in the 80s. and. Mm the Mariel boat lift. I loved sort of the the color and the flavor of Miami. I loved that it was such a melting pot. It was mm. so fun. I lived in Coconut Grove. But anyway, I did a lot of reporting, maybe two stories a day sometimes. Crime was really bad then. So there were crime, immigration issues. And many reporters from Miami go on to be network reporters, because mm. so many stories there are national stories, not just local stories. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then I got offered a, a job in Washington in local news and did that for a couple of years, which was fun. I loved WRC and I loved the people there. And that's when Tim Russert saw me and said, this girl's got a little, this girl's got game. She's got it going on. And he offered me a job as the deputy Pentagon correspondent. So that uh, I had to learn all about the military on my honeymoon. I was studying F-14s and M1A1 tanks and all sorts of military hardware, much to my husband's chagrin. And then I did that for about a year and a half. And they started asking me to read the news on the Today Show. And I had never anchored. I was a reporter. I was like a scrappy street reporter. And I started learning how to read the teleprompter. I wasn't very good at it and read the news. And then from there, one thing led to another. They had a debacle on the Today Show with Jane Pauley and Deborah Norville. Mm. And they were looking for a solution. And they thought that I I would be a good solution to their problem. So Mm. it was a little right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. A little, you know, I was, had all this experience under mm-hmm. my belt, mm-hmm. having been told I, they never wanted to see me on the air. It was really actually a very positive thing. And I, in hindsight, I do appreciate what Reese Schoenfeld said yes. back in the day. So that's how it all came to pass. That's so cool. Yeah, it's crazy. And I can't believe, you know, it's so, life goes by so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there for 15 years at CBS for five years, did a syndicated talk show, went to Yahoo for five years. And now I'm starting my own company, which is exciting. But God, yeah. time goes by so quickly. What yeah. do they say? The, 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 the days are long, but the years, years are, are short. short. And yes. it's so true. I feel that too. So like every day kind of, I don't know, write a journal and mm. make sure you make the most of it. I wish I had written a journal because I'm writing my book right now and I'm thinking, God, I wish I had written how I felt that day yes. and what exactly happened. And it's it's so helpful. I'm working on starting that process actually because I'm, same, I look back at my life and think, God, I should have been keeping records. I know. 
And luckily, I have a lot of scripts and articles. My parents kept scrapbooks of all my oh, articles. That's so so sweet. cute. I have six scrapbooks that my mom and dad, you know, painstakingly and meticulously put together. And it, they're so, they were so sweet to do that. But I also kept everything. So I have yes. boxes and boxes of stuff that's that amazing. I'm finding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it. I'm just super sentimental and I just keep things. And I thought, well, Monday I may want to write a book about my experiences. It'll be cathartic and interesting for me. Maybe it could be helpful to other people. Mm. Maybe it'll be borderline interesting. So I'm glad I kept all that stuff. I love that. So I have a, I have a question. You, when we talk about the today show, you know, all of these incredible, powerful moments that you get to experience you know, as an anchor, as a newswoman with the country. But I think people often forget when you are a leader in a space that your life is being experienced with the country as well. It's really, it's kind of a two-way mirror, you know? Mm -hmm. I think about it like that glass in the police station like that you see on Law & Order. Mariska's always in the back like watching the guy through the thing. It's that, there, there is that for any person in the public eye. And I'm curious about what some of your you know, your biggest and best memories are with the country uh, as you're heading the Today Show. And I'm also curious if if you'd be willing to share what it was like to go through some of your toughest and most personal experiences as, you know, the face of the nation. Because you, you mentioned, Jay, you know, your mm-hmm. your husband passed and your sister passed away while you were anchoring. And I I just can't fathom what it must have been like to have to show up for people during those experiences. And I think that the duality of that is is so beautiful and heartbreaking and, and special. And I, I wonder if you, I wonder what that looks like now. Yeah. Know? Well, I, I'm also writing a lot about that. And mm-hmm. You know, I think there's something very unique about a morning show or was, I think, Mm. especially when the landscape was less fragmented, Mm -hmm. you know, that was a cultural and really um, a daily touchstone for people. Mm. And I think as a result, people who have someone in their living room or bedroom every morning, they feel very close to that person. You know, people used to say, I feel like I know you. And I used to respond, well, you kind of do because they saw me in all kinds of situations. Of course, there's a lot of me they don't know, but Mm -hmm. they saw me being funny or serious or sad or whatever. So they, it's, it's, it's this multidimensionality that people get to, be a part of that doesn't always happen, say, on an evening newscast. Mm. And I was a very kind of, am a very open and accessible person. You know, I sort of don't put on airs at all. I'm the same person, at least on the Today Show, on camera as as I am off. And so this, it's a very intimate thing. Mm. And I, I appreciated it, actually. I'd never felt it was intrusive or weird. I... I liked that people felt close to me. And it was very difficult during Jay's illness. He was sick for nine months. Mm. And I think in a weird way, the Today Show was a safe space for me. Those two hours, which they were only two hours back then, was the the only time I wasn't thinking and terrified 
mm-hmm. and obsessively researching how I could help my husband. Mm-hmm. So it took me away from that. I described it as feeling like my heart was in a vice 24-7. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I could get away from that and focus on the news of the day or do an interview. And it was the only time I, I could kind of forget. Of course, during the commercials, that's all I thought about. But I didn't have enough brain space to focus on, you know, a big story or interviewing a CEO or talking, debriefing a reporter or, you know, covering politics or foreign policy and be thinking about my husband's metastatic colon cancer. Mm. So it was intrusive when like the National Enquirer would report on us and say all these things. I felt like it, because Jay wasn't a public figure, I was. And I Mm. just didn't think they had a right to talk about Jay's private situation. Mm-hmm. It was just nobody's business, but That's ours. So invasive. Yeah. And, but I feel like, you know, when Jay died, I, I kept, I had probably 10,000 cards. I had mass cards from total strangers. I had sympathy cards. I had notes. I had people. It was actually incredibly moving mm-hmm. and incredibly generous and lovely that all these people would write to me. You know, I mean, I saw such an incredible side of humanity that was so, it was just so comforting. Mm. And so I really appreciated that closeness that viewers felt to me and the fact that they reached out to me in this time of terrible sorrow Mm. and were willing to actually put pen to paper and spend the time Mm. to craft something beautiful to me and to share their own pain. I mean, I thought it was honestly very profound. And I've gone through some of those recently, you know, mass cards from just, you know, Jay was Catholic and, you know, these people who, you know, got these leather bound, beautiful, I'm not Catholic, so I hadn't really seen them in these Mm -hmm. leather cases with gold, you know, engraved writing and Jay's name filled in. And it was just, it was just incredible. So Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, the collective embrace of so many people. And it, it was, it was really powerful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, um, that's how I kind of, I got through doing the Today Show during those nine months. And then when my sister was sick and I think I'm very good at compartmentalizing, honestly, and that served me well Mm -hmm. during those difficult times. And, you know, I actually was just at a dinner for for 41 mayors at um, Mike Bloomberg has a a thing where he helps mayors. He's just, you know, he's given more to cities than any person in history. I mean, he's just, he's just such a phenomenally generous and philanthropic person and it's really... I think changing the world in mm. in the best way. I think, you know, he's putting money towards so many social issues that I care deeply about, whether it's reducing gun violence or health and mm-hmm. I mean and the environment. He's he's awesome, really. Yeah, he I is. wish he had run for president. I think he he would not have liked campaigning because he's not a real people person. You know, he's not super gregarious mm. and probably all the glad handing would have gotten on his nerves, but he's a, he's ex, an extraordinary manager, I think, and just 
just, I just think he, he would have been a f- phenomenal president. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think that probably for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, I think he, you know, he does have certain opinions that he's not going to change and he's not going to, to lean toward the left in any way, shape or form. But I think he's, I think he's just amazing. Anyway, I was bringing that up because someone came up to me and she was the mayor of, I'm trying to remember where she was the mayor. She was really nice. And she said, I just want you to know that growing up to see you covering 9-11 and it was such an important experience for me. So I think 9-11 is probably the one event that really stands out and makes me, you know, I'm very proud of it. And I also feel like... um, Your coverage of that, you mean? Yeah, Hmm. you know, being kind of a steady hand during this chaotic, terrifying time Mm -hmm. was a really important experience for me. So I think about that. And there are, of course, many more that I'm thinking about and writing about, but that certainly stands out. Mm -hmm. And, and, And again, I think, circling back to Jay's death, doing a colonoscopy on air. That was incredible. And, you know, I just thought, gosh, I've learned so much. It would be almost criminal not to share this. Yes. And the fact that this is a life-saving screening procedure. Yes. And... And that so, and that the numbers shot so drastically up after you. Yeah, did that not enough, not going. enough. There's still not enough compliance. And one thing that's yes. really scary, Sophia, which your listeners should be aware of, is that colon cancer cases among young people are, are increasing dramatically, and they don't know why. They don't know whether it's associated with obesity. There are other theories. Maybe it's the over prescription. Sorry of. I'm fascinated with this whole conversation about the microbiome. Yes. Which I really want to learn more oh, about. And the microbiome. For you to really? Interview. It actually can affect your mental health, yes. which is so interesting to me. Yeah, the gut is actually the building block of of your mental stability. Yeah, I think that's so crazy. Like, mm-hmm. I want someone to help me understand that. Oh, I have a great person. Okay, for you. good. You said that younger and younger people are getting colorectal cancer. And I'm 37. Do I need to go have a colonoscopy this year? Should I have one at 40? When when do we really need to start thinking about that? Because until you said that, I hadn't considered that mm-hmm. that was something that needed to be on my radar. I mean, I think it's something you should talk to your doctor about okay. because there's there, the blanket recommendation is 50 for your first screening colonoscopy, although... The American Cancer Society has lowered that age for your first screening to 45. Wow. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a colonoscopy. Uh, many people consider it the gold standard. But if you have any, you know, a lot of it has to do with family history, although family, no family history is no guarantee. Jay, mm-hmm. Jay's mom had ovarian cancer. His grandmother had breast cancer. So these adenocarcinomas can be slightly hereditary, they believe. But... You know, so Ellie and Carrie will need to be screened at 30 because Jay was mm. diagnosed at 41. And you get diagnosed 10 years before your first line relative hat was diagnosed. Wow. And I think a lot of doctors I talk to do get screened at 40, mm-hmm. which I think is quite telling. But I think it's something that you just need to discuss with your doctor and be keenly aware of the symptoms of like uh, bloating or irregular bowels or 
when they say blood in your stools, it doesn't necessarily mean you have red in the toilet bowl. It may be, be your stools are discolored, darker than usual. So I think it, it's important just to be educated about it mm-hmm. and, and, and then talk to your doctor and make sure you have a doctor who listens to you. Mm. You know, a lot of people say they go to their doctor and they complain about symptoms and the doctor blows that person off and says, oh, you probably have hemorrhoids and they don't really take it seriously. And so I think, you know, I'm not encouraging people to be hypochondriacs, but I do think that if you feel like something's wrong Mm. with you, go to a doctor who takes you seriously. And if that doctor doesn't, find another doctor. And perhaps this is ignorant, but I, again, I just don't know. What kind of a doctor do you even go to? Your internist this? can talk to you an and then he'll or she or he will recommend a gastroenterologist. Okay. So you see an internist first and then a gastro. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, Jay didn't see a doctor regularly. Like mm-hmm. many young men, he played lacrosse and football in college. He was healthy. He didn't drink to excess. He never smoked a cigarette. And, you know, I think that he just thought he was healthy. Mm -hmm. And men really need to go get physicals every year. They just have to. Mm -hmm. Women, because they're part, they they go to OBGYNs generally, hopefully, are much more in the system and have a medical professional with whom they can discuss things. Mm -hmm. But a lot of men, I think, don't. And I really would urge all any guy out there, any woman who has a guy in her life or a brother or whatever, to encourage them to to see a doctor regularly. I don't know if Jay's cancer would have been detected, but maybe a doctor would have said, you know, how are you feeling or examined his belly or talked to him about different things that might have pointed to the fact that he had this cancer growing inside him. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all that. I think that'll be really helpful for people. So get screened, people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You took your platform and you helped to create Stand Up to Cancer. And you, it like literally makes me teary-eyed. You guys have raised over $600 million for cancer research. I mean, just nine crazy women. It's so. Which I should probably stop saying, but I do think it's worth saying that nine women got together and said, enough, we don't want, the pace is too slow. Mm. Like, let's put our foot on the gas Mm -hmm. and let's support cancer research. And it is pretty effing phenomenal, isn't it? It's phenomenal. And when you say, you know, nine crazy women, I get what you're saying because what you're really saying is we're just these nine people. Right. And isn't it crazy that this happened? And it makes me think of that Steve Jobs quote, you know, the crazy ones where he says like, it's only the ones crazy enough to think they can change the world who do. Well, it's also like that Margaret Mead quote, which I love, which is never, never doubt the power of a small group of individuals to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Yeah. Something like that. Sorry, Margaret Mead. Fans out there. If I, I probably misquoted that slightly. I think but. you did very well. What what has been the best experience for you working working with Stand Up to Cancer, the you know, the the dream teams and the telethons and, and the sort of global support, you know, how so how is much, it going? I mean, so much has been a great experience. I'm not in the trenches day in and day out, and a lot of my my friends and colleagues who are founders are, and 
I owe them a huge debt of gratitude for for keeping the flame going. And I am involved, obviously, and do what I can. But they are kind of day in and day out Mm. in there. Mm. And gosh, there have been so many spectacular moments. So many. I mean, from celebrating scientists who get Mm. very little attention or public accolades and, you know, to show that we are a nation grateful for their hard work and that we want to support what they do and to even get to know them. They're brilliant and and humble and so focused on helping other people. Mm-hmm. So to, to be able to be in their company is such a privilege, truly. Mm-hmm. Then there, of course, are the patients. I can't tell you how many people come to me or write to me or DM me and want to know how I can help them with their cancer situations. Mm. And sometimes I can, and often I can't. Mm-hmm. And, but to see, to see hope mm. for the people who, who are in, in the throes of it and to see actually people getting better mm. and to see scientists working together for the good of their patients and to meet people who have dealt with cancer and are on the other side. And, you know, there's a young woman named Pierce who I met when I was doing a story for CBS and she was at CHOP, which is the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. And Mm. she was very, very sick and she had a onesie on, you know, she was like a little preteen and I think she was 11 maybe. And now she's graduating she graduated from college mm. and she's a phenomenal success story. And I meet women like that and men like that all the time. Emily Whitehead, who, I mean, who survived childhood cancer thanks to science. So I, I mean, there's just so many, so many things that I feel grateful and that I've learned about and been exposed to because of stand up to cancer. Mm. And just makes you feel like you are giving something back mm. to the world. And, and you know, we have six new, uh, six drugs have been approved by the FDA. I think there's one just in the last couple of weeks. So we're, we're making progress. It's too slow for my taste mm-hmm. still, but we're helping people. And, and so to contribute to the efforts of many organizations and many scientists and institutions, but to play a role in that yes. is very gratifying. You know, I wish I weren't in this position in some ways. I wish that my husband was here and my sister would have been the first female governor of Virginia. Mm. We're all convinced of that. But absent of that, the fact that I can contribute in some small way or some pretty nice way, you know, yes. is great. And when you think about this kind of activism, both in the philanthropic space and, and, and in the political space, I'm, I'm curious how you think concerned citizens and, and activists can emulate what you guys are doing, push for greater social change, because you've got the experience from inside of Stand Up to Cancer. You've got all the know-how of the American political landscape, and, and, and you traveled the country for America inside out for a year after Trump was elected and all of the topics 
that you were covering were so ahead of the curve, which was so wild. You, you had this debate over taking down statues and political correctness and women in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And, I know. Isn't that crazy? And, I was doing gender inequality broke. in Hollywood. And I remember yeah. calling, uh, writing to Meryl Streep and asking her about it. And, and it Casual. was, it, no, oh, no, no, I know, no, I know, I know, I don't mean that, but no, I I'd interviewed amazing. her before and I thought I'd like to get her take on it. Yeah. And, and this whole sort of me too thing didn't even enter the conversation. It was more about like men don't want to see films done by women or chick flicks. And it was just, I think this whole, you know, deep rooted sexism that mm-hmm. was so pervasive, it, it just had not come to the surface yet. So isn't mm-hmm. it crazy that that this happened while I was exploring? I, all, my, I started with a simple question. Why are there so few female directors? I was like, I always read about it. I was like, what is holding women back so much in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Almost more than other places. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I got to figure this out. I got to understand it. Wow. So what do you think? What uh, sort of... Gleaning all these lessons, how do you think those of us out there who want to push culture forward, where where do we begin? Oh God! Well, well, <laughs> are there um, are there sort of temple uh, ideas? Well, Sophia, or? <laughs> let me tell you, I feel like you know <laughs> the wise woman imparting her knowledge. I I I think there are a myriad of ways. Mm-hmm. I think. You do, you know, you can do something in your own community. Mm-hmm. I, I do think it should be actionable. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's one thing to raise a ruckus about something yep. and to protest. But I do think people want to feel there's something they can actually do that will lead to change. Yes. It's not just the bitching and the moaning, right? Follow it's, protest with policy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or actionable action items. Isn't that what they call it? Actionable items. And, you know, what is your goal? How can you move toward that goal with reducing gun violence? A lot of people working slowly and with great effort, state Mm -hmm. by state, moms demand action. They're, they're going to legislatures. They're following it up with, you know, they're following they're following policy. Yes. Uh, And it's a lot of hard work to be, part of, I think, social change Mm -hmm. and to channel your energies into things that will actually move the needle, right? So I think you have to have a goal, but you have to have the steps that you need, perhaps incremental, Mm -hmm. toward reaching that goal. Sure. And I think you can do it in small ways. You can donate to organizations you believe in their work. Mm -hmm. That's a, a, you know, what do they call that? Or you can talk about it on social media, slacktivism. You heard that expression. Yeah. And, but slacktivism is okay as long as you're doing something, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're contributing money or trying to get people engaged. Yes. But then I think pick a cause that you really care about and roll up your sleeves and really get in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to get skin in the game. Yeah. And so I think, I don't know, I'm not... I'm not a professional activist. I'm sure there are people who have much more wisdom in this department than I do. But, you know, what I do feel very heartened about is that young people do really, really care Mm. about the world around them. And that, you know, I I read articles about how baby boomers screwed everything up. And I think they're right in some ways. Mm. 
But the good news is, and hopefully it's not too late for things like the environment, but we're starting to see a real sea change, literally and figuratively, in terms of people saying, we've got to acknowledge these problems, we Mm -hmm. have to address them, we have to fix them. Yeah. And when we think about sea change, you know, there there have been some, there's, there's been amazing headway made. But then even as we talk about this idea of, you know, what's keeping women out of entertainment, for example, now we've got Nora O'Donnell solo anchoring the nightly news, but she's only the third woman to ever do that. Right. So as we're seeing all this great change, why do you think in certain arenas like the news, it, it feels like it's moving so slowly? Well, I think partially it's because the leadership of most of these organizations are men. And I think they're the victims of cultural conditioning that mm. makes them judge women a certain way by certain standards. Mm-hmm. And Oh gosh, this is a long conversation about glass ceilings mm. and uh, but also about glass cliffs. And what do you mean by that? A glass cliff is sort of the expression used when a woman gets in a position of power or authority and in fact breaks the glass ceiling that there's a glass cliff because she's held to different standards mm. and she falls off of it and then that hurts other women who are coming up. So she falls off or gets pushed. Yeah. Mm. Or maybe she was there for the wrong reason. Who knows? Who knows? But I think that it is changing. Susan Zarinsky is the president of CBS News now. And I mm. think, you know, versus when I was there, Sean McManus was a very nice guy who act, who was the president of news, but he hated news. But to have someone like Z there supporting Nora, I think makes a big difference because basically the message within the organization is heard loud and clear. This is our person. Mm. You better get in line, be supportive or get off the train. And I think that if you don't have that message permeating into an organization or penetrating into an organization, and it's a change, then it can result in a lot of conflict and mm. chaos. And that's sort of, I think, internally. And then you have the external things that you mm. have to deal with too. But I think we've evolved some. And I think as more women be, get put in leadership position, so that's not to say all women are great leaders, just because you can't say all men are great leaders. Of course. But it does bring a different sensibility. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to issues of gender... I think it sends a very strong message Mm -hmm. throughout the organization. I think one of the best ways I've ever heard it phrased, I listened to uh, Oprah interview this 92-year-old nun, Sister Joan Chittering, I believe is her Uh last name. And she said, listen, gender equality is is the thing I think we need most in the world. She said, and and past it being a male-female issue, what we're saying if we're we're each 50% of the population. Well, we're 51. 51 actually. Exactly. <laughs> but the, you know, her but who's her, counting? her her idea is that if 50% of the if people with 50% of the information are making 100% of the decisions, the decisions are going to be bad. 
Of course. When you look at the Women's Media Center, it's true. And that's why diversity of all kinds Mm -hmm. is really important because everyone, you know, my mother-in-law says there's no such thing as objectivity, which is really true Mm -hmm. because everyone brings their own experiences and frame of reference to anything they're covering or talking about. Of course, you can strive for objectivity, but if it's not just the basic where, when, you know, what, when, where, who, what, who, when, what, where, why, you know, the W's, you are infusing it with a certain kind of nuance and a certain context and a certain perspective. Sure. So it's so important that you have people who represent all kinds of life experience. Socioeconomic diversity yes. is really important. Racial diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity, gender yes. identity diversity, all those things just, I think, mm-hmm. inform and bring a more representative form of media. And that's why it's critically important. So when you think about representative media and diverse media, you launched your production company in 2015. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious what stories are important to you to tell, what stories you feel like have been missing from the media and and what you want to shine a light on through what you're now at the helm of. Well, I think politics, I've always loved politics, but I think the political environment we're in now is sucking so much of the oxygen out of the room Mm. that we haven't really addressed some big social issues. And I'm sort of interested in talking about things along the lines I did in America Inside Out. What is Mm. it like to be a Muslim in America right now? And why is there so much prejudice against, in some cases, in some quarters, Muslim Americans? And so... I'm teaming up with companies. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Companies are now, some authentically, some less authentically, associating with a purpose. Mm. Because, first of all, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, something like 78% of employees are looking to their CEOs and company leadership to take a stand on big, important social issues. And that's why you see Nike and Levi's and all kinds mm-hmm. of companies and P&G has been at the forefront stepping into these and sometimes stepping into it, but step, you know, really thinking and being forward facing about addressing some of these problems. And so I'm, because the advertising model is kind of broken, at least in the yep. digital landscape, I'm teaming up with these companies to talk about things like criminal justice reform Mm. or uh, gender equality, the importance of female mentorship, the environment, what's going on with plastic and Mm. how can we really, you know, why is recycling such a failure? So all these things that I think I'm interested in understanding more and I think people are craving. Mm -hmm. And it's not only important to maintain a millennial workforce that doesn't want to work for a company that cares only about the bottom line, but also consumers want companies to stand for something. Yes, And so it's sort of a halo effect of saying we care about yeah. our community and we care about our country. It's so that's true. what I'm doing. And it's it's been really interesting. And, and a lot of people are interested in working with me, which is very gratifying too. I love that. I, I've, Many years, probably seven years ago now, there's a big conference that you should know called MCON in the Midwest. And it's all the big CMOs of all the big brands. And I was asked to keynote and they were like, you, you're this social media activist. How do we get to millennials? And I got up on stage and said, you guys want me to talk to you about how to appeal to millennials? Stop lying to us. 
That was my opening of my talk and the whole room kind of, and then I was like, I'm not here to act, I'm not here just to make you feel bad, but let's break it down. And we went through this whole thing and, and it was the most fun that I'd had because I got to say, this is a campaign that we knew was a lie. This is a campaign that really took a took a risk and had something to say. And, and it was so fun to unpack right. for these people how you can really take responsibility as a brand because you're a financial force in the world and, and how that's really required and to see what's been happening in, in this last <clears throat> five years especially. Yeah. Has, it's very exciting to me. I'm so just, so I'm too. glad you're doing this. I yeah. think it's so great. The thing I'm also so excited about with your company is your newsletter, which I'm obsessed with. Oh, thank also, you. Also, thanks for putting me in it. That <laughs> was so sweet. I like saw myself on your Instagram. I sent it to my mom. I was like, mom, I'm having a moment. I'm on Katie Couric's like recommended list. What's happening? Uh, it was so cool. So, I'm- Well, that's fun. And you know, I don't know about you, but I mean, it's hard. I, I'm listening to you. I'm like, how does Sophia know that about that conference. I don't know how you find the time in the day to consume and learn. It's hard. I wonder that about you too, though. I wonder how everyone can be so abreast of all the topics and I'm reading not. all the books. I mean, and- I am trying and I'm trying to help other people because mm-hmm. you can go down a rabbit hole of completely useless information <laughs> on your phone. So I'm trying to say, hey, before you leave you know, your house or while you're on the subway or here's some of the things that are happening in the world mm-hmm. by someone you trust, hopefully, mm-hmm. and by someone you know, uh, a little possibly, and someone who you feel is a is a good person. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there are a lot of newsletters from entities, but not many from actual living human beings. And so I usually start by telling people, like this morning I talked about interviewing John F. Kennedy Jr. in his last TV interview before he died. And this is the 20th anniversary of his death. And it still makes me so sad and all Mm. that lost potential. And so I try to make it a little personal, but also pretty readable and accessible. So I'm glad you like it. Tell your listeners to subscribe. They can go to katiekirk.com or you know you can text 474747. This is something I just learned. And you just write my name, Katie, and then you sign up for it. Isn't that crazy? That's so cool. Technology is incredible. Technology is <laughs> amazing. Yeah. I, si- I signed up the good old-fashioned way online. But oh, that's, good. That's cool. I like a text. Yeah, and you can go to my Instagram, too, and there's your a Instagram sign up there. Your Instagram is great. Is it? I yeah. don't know. Oh, I um, like it. I'm into Instagram it. Instagram is so interesting, isn't it? I check... I check you really frequently, and I check Jessica Yellen really yeah, frequently yeah. as well. Yeah, Jessica's doing a great job. That of whole news not down. noise yeah. thing she's doing is yeah. so helpful, right? So yeah, you you guys are are sort of my. We're gurus. trying to kind of, uh, yeah. I do I I do kind of a mix of personal and yeah. professional, which I love. Yeah, people like that too. Yeah, trying to kind of, you know, remind people of the the sort of relationship I had with them on the Today Show. Yeah. Well, and it's a new iteration of that, which feels so familiar to us. And I think, again, you help us all feel safe. Well, thanks. Thank you. I try. So this is something I ask everyone. The title of the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I think for so many people who are outside looking in at, at at a person like you, they think she's got it all figured out. And I'm Talk always, to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always so curious. 
what feels like a work in progress in your life right now, whether it's professional, personal, political, maybe you're trying to organize the junk drawer. I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious yeah. what you're, what you're That's working That's funny. On. We, we call it the junk drawer or we, my mom used to call it the goodie drawer because we'd put all like re-gifting things in the goodie drawer. <laughs> you know, for me, I think I am a work in progress when it comes to getting older. You know, mm-hmm. I'm 62. As I said, time has gone by so quickly. My daughter's getting married. My other daughter is out of college and just got her master's at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Go Carrie. And Ellie's working, writing for an Amazon show wow. called The Boys that comes wow. out soon. And, you know, I think life stages are are challenging. I think this mm-hmm. stage is challenging. I think how do you stay engaged? And I hate the word relevant, but how do you continue to do work that you like and love? And how do you, you know, how do you find the right balance of personal and professional? How do you, you know, pick what you're going to really get involved in and Mm -hmm. discernment? According to the Maharishi, someone told me not too long ago that discernment is the most important word in Mm. the English language or in any language, I guess. And figuring out sort of what you're going to do with your time, where you're going to put it, especially when so much of your life is, or a lot of your life is in the rearview mirror Mm. and you have a limited uh, runway before you. So I think I'm a work in progress in trying to really figure out how I can be a force for good in whatever way I can Mm. and also how I can be there for my friends and family Mm -hmm. and how I can have fun. I'm a Mm -hmm. big proponent of loving, you know, life and enjoying myself, Mm -hmm. you know, with so many options. I'm lucky, you know, I'm so lucky. I'm in a Mm -hmm. position where I have a lot of options, thank goodness, because not everyone does, but that's what I'm sort of trying to figure out right now. That's where my work is hopefully progressing. Mm. I love that. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud 10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.